leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. One reason immunotherapies fail is because of the ability of tumors to alter the microenvironment in which they exist and hide themselves from detection by the immune system. In some indications, as few as 20% of patients benefit from checkpoint inhibitors. Oncolytics Biotech is developing Pelorearep, an immune oncolytic virus that activates the innate and adaptive immune systems, triggering inflammation in the tumor and overexpressing checkpoints to increase the number of patients that can benefit from the use of these immunotherapies. We spoke to Matt Coffey, president and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, about Pelorearep, how it works to treat cancer, and why it can make checkpoint inhibitors more effective. Matt, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Oncolytics Biotech, its lead candidate, Pelorearap, and overcoming the challenges of immunotherapy. Let's start with checkpoint inhibitors, which are a class of immunotherapies that are reshaping cancer care. What are checkpoint inhibitors, and, and how do they work? They are the fasting growth segments in uh, oncology, not just immuno-oncology, but oncology right now. And they're unique in that they actually don't target the tumor. I mean, when we think of cancer therapies, we think of surgery to eliminate the disease, we think of radiotherapy to ablate or destroy the disease, or we're thinking chemotherapy. All of these act on the tumor itself. What checkpoint inhibitors do is fascinating. They actually take... Um, T-cells that recognize the tumor that have become exhausted and overwhelmed by the disease, and they reinvigorate them to target and destroy the disease. And this is really, I think, empowering for the patients because it allows them to use their very own immune system, and you just amplify it and accelerate it to eliminate the disease. And they're tremendously effective, and it's going to be, I think it's estimated, a $25 billion marketplace by 2022. And this, despite the fact they only work in one in five, one in four patients. Um, so we really do need to find a way to enhance the activity and make them more relevant to a broader cross-section of patients because they are so tremendously exciting. Well, what do we know about why immunotherapies like checkpoint inhibitors work in such a small subsection of patients? What's happening? Well, there's a few things that work against them. Um, 
because they're not actively targeting the disease, they're targeting T cells. And what and what the goal here is to do is to take T cells that are autoreactive, and by that I mean T cells that can recognize and destroy the tumor, um, and make them much more invigorated, reactivate them, because tumors, it's almost as though they have a secret handshake, and it takes the T cell and says, you know, please ignore me. You know, ignore that I'm growing here. And because tumors are really part of our cells, they're not foreign, they're not like something like a bacterial infection or a viral infection, it's hard for our immune systems to see them. So for patients to have a checkpoint inhibitor to work, they have to have those pre-existing T cells. Um, some patients won't have them. And unfortunately, in those patients, giving something to invigorate a T cell that's non-existent isn't going to be a successful outcome. The other thing is, for checkpoint inhibitors to work, we have to relocate T cells to the tumor itself because T cells are the effector cells. They're a very specific component of our immune system and very specialized. Um, there's two arms for our immune system, the innate and the adaptive. And the innate immune response is natural killer cells. And I like to think of them almost like B-cops. They're very effective, um, but maybe they're not very sophisticated. There's a lot of them, and they're looking for the usual suspects. T-cells, however, are educated T-cells. So I think of them more as like the detectives, um, the ones that have been educated, the ones that you know, know what to look for. And those are the ones that have to surveil and find the tumor and eliminate them. But for them to be effective, they have to be in the tumor. So with checkpoint inhibitors, you have to have T-cells that are already pre-existing that know what the tumor looks like. Then you have to relocate them to the tumor and lastly, uh, the tumor cells have to express something called pd one um, which is the target of checkpoint inhibitors. So if you can imagine it's a receptor that you're trying to target. If you don't have that receptor, um, they won't be very effective. So you have to have those three things in place for checkpoint inhibitors to be effective. You have to have the T cells, you have to have them in the tumor, and you have to be expressing pd one so the strategies really to make them more effective are to do things that create T cells, that relocate them to the tumor, and cause the tumor cells to overexpress PDL1. And that way we think we can get checkpoint inhibitors to work in maybe two and five, three and five, maybe even four and five patients. You're developing Pelorirap. This is an, an oncolytic virus. What's an oncolytic virus? Viruses it's funny, viruses get a bad rap. Um, when people think viruses, they think Ebola, um, they think herpes virus, they think the flu. Um, most viruses, we have millions of viruses in the environment that don't do anything. Um, Rheovirus is a specific virus that's oncolytic, and what oncolytic means is it replicates specifically and only in tumor cells. So there's no effect on normal tissue. The virus is prevented from replicating there, um, and the replication actually basically informs or alarms the immune system that the tumor is something that should be destroyed because it's foreign. It's not something that's positive. So the goal of oncolytic viruses are to specifically infect, replicate in tumor cells, um, cause some destruction, but basically to uh, allow the immune system to see the tumor for the first time. The example I really like, um, do you watch movies? Sure. So it's the old trope. It's the old bank robbery movie where a very anonymous, very stealthy citizen enters a bank in, you know, the trench coat and the fedora, and he gets in line, and he's anonymous. And he goes up to the teller, and he very discreetly passes a note to the teller saying, you know, I want a bag full of cash. 
in non-sequential $100 bills. She hands it to him, and he anonymously tries to slink out of the bank, and it explodes in that purple dye. What oncolytic viruses are is it's the purple dye. It takes something that's negative, like a bank robber and anonymous, and it makes it very, very obvious to the immune system by labeling it as foreign. So in most simplistic terms, we're just making the tumor exposed to the immune system for the first time. This is a a naturally occurring virus. How was it discovered, and, and what do you need to do to prepare and deliver it? It was interesting. Actually, it, it's Pelorirep is derived from a virus called Reovirus, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere in our environment. Uh, surface water is most common. So ponds, uh, most commonly actually found in urban sewage, so it's thought we're the primary host. You've been infected by it. You never would have known. You probably had your first infection by your 10th birthday, maybe your 12th birthday, but it would have been subclinical. You never would have gone to the doctor. It was actually, ironically or surprisingly, um, identified in 1959. And in the 50s, everyone's thinking viruses are all something that should be eradicated by vaccine programs. But for years, they couldn't actually discover what rare virus was doing. So surprisingly, in 63, they gave it to a prison population. And what they found is it didn't do anything. It caused runny nose, and the prisoners felt maybe slightly fluish, but there was no side effects. So it really got relegated to the academic setting really as a teaching tool because you could give it to grad students, you could give it to undergrads, um, and teach them how to work with a virus without health consequences. And we were working with it uh, in the lab setting um, because it's related to pathogenic forms of related family members, but we thought if we understood how it replicated, it might give insight into how pathogenic forms replicate. And basically what we found uh, when I was a grad student is we could only grow it in cancer cells. So we began a program really looking to see whether we could um, use it as an agent uh, that could actually grow, replicate, destroy tumor cells, alert the immune system. And that's really where the program started. It was just an academic finding that we capitalized on and formed a company around. So we're really quite pleased with everything that's happened. Given that this is a, a naturally occurring virus, are, are there IP issues around it? What prevents a, another company from growing the virus themselves? Um, great question, actually. Um, it replicates due to a quirk in our biochemistry. So what happens is real virus is not a pathogen because your immune system at a cellular level sees it very readily. Its genome is double-stranded RNA, um, which looks foreign. It's It's something that should never be in the cell. So we have a lot of surveillance systems, almost like home security, that allow the cell to see it. And when it does, it stops translation very, very quickly. So basically, the virus just doesn't have a chance to make copies of itself in normal tissue. Cancer tissue, cancer tissue, it loses that home security function. It doesn't see the double-stranded RNA and allows it to replicate. So it's this quirk in the biology that we understood that led to our first patents. So we could identify which tumors it would grow in. And our most recent patents, what we identified is when we grew the virus up, um, we ended up adapting it to human cells. So we actually have a unique variant. So we actually have composition of matter on the particular strain we use in the clinic, which is good until 2033. And that's really where the IP estate comes from. You're able to use this to activate the innate immune system. One of the issues with, with doing this is keeping it trained on the cells you want it to attack and preventing a, a systemic response. 
How well are you able to do this? Very well. And actually, it's not just the innate system. It's the innate and followed by the adaptive. Um, as I said, normal tissue won't replicate uh, the, the, the virus. So it doesn't actually... Infected cells are very good at signaling the immune system. Um, anytime you've been uh, sick or anytime you've even had a splinter, you get swelling, you get um, the recruitment of natural killer cells, and eventually you get destruction of that tissue. Now, that destruction of that tissue, because it is specific, um, it basically creates a vaccine. The natural killer cells recognize it as foreign. They come in. They start decimating that tissue, and when they do so, they do it in a way that actually creates a lot of cell debris, and that cell debris is really a vaccine effect. So what happens is we get natural killer cells that kill the tumor, and then T cells will come in and learn what the tumor looks like from this destruction. And what we get then is long-term immunity. In animal models, if we cure the animal of their disease, we can't reimplant it. They actually learn what it looks like, and they'll actually prevent the tumor from growing before it has a chance to start. Now, it's so profound, we can actually take those mice that have been cured and actually reimplant or take that immune system and put it in a naive animal, they'll reject rechallenge. So we know that the majority of the killing or the protective aspects that cause the benefit are actually not really the virus per se, but it's the virus's education of uh, the immune system. And for the first time, we've actually demonstrated this in patients. We can actually treat women with breast cancer, um, excise the disease, and then apply the immune system to it. That baseline, the immune system doesn't actually see the tumor. And at three weeks, all of a sudden, the immune system becomes reactive to the tumor. So we've actually educated the immune system. You're developing a, a biomarker blood test to determine patients most likely to benefit from the therapy. What is the biomarker test looking at, and how does it predict which patients are, are likely to benefit? Well, that's just it. Um, what we find with our patients on treatment is it manifests actually as a survival benefit. So it's hard to see tumor shrinkage right away. Um, it's hard to see improvements in progression-free survival. But what we no started to notice is patients on treatment lived longer, and like quite a bit longer. We did a study in breast cancer where we actually doubled overall survival from 10 months to 21. Um, when we spoke with the FDA about this, they said, well, this really has to be mediated by the immune system. So why don't you find a way of measuring the immune system to see basically how robust it is, how responsive it is, and how nimble it is. So we're using an assay called TCR sequencing, which is simply T-cell receptor sequencing. And what that is, is it's a way of quantifying or looking at how robust, how reactive your immune system is. So we can take a blood, and it's a simple one mil blood draw, and then we can actually look to see whether the patients have an adequate, reserve, or adequate immune reserve to respond to treatment. Um, so basically, it's just a measurement. Like, do you have an immune system, yes or no? And if you do, we can confirm whether they've been vaccinated as early as three weeks. So we can take a patient and treat them. Three weeks later, we can see if they've actually generated new T cells to the tumor. And if you have, um, this correlates with a survival benefit. If you haven't, we should really get them onto something that's more effective for them. So it really enters the age of personalized medicine, and it allows us to, at baseline, predict who's likely to respond. But we can confirm that as early as three weeks. You're looking at, at checkpoint inhibitors, but is there a reason to believe that it would have a, 
synergistic effect with other types of immunotherapies? Oh, absolutely. Um, and just as a caveat, um, where we saw doubling of survival um, was just with paclitaxel, which is a, a, in breast cancer. Um, it's just a cytotoxic. The virus itself is a very good immunotherapy, but what we're excited about is it does provide almost everything you need for a checkpoint inhibitor to work. It creates new T-cells. Those T-cells are reactive to the tumor. The infection process draws those T-cells into the tumor, and the infection process actually causes overexpression of the checkpoint target, PDL one That being said, it should work with other immunotherapies, uh, things like CDK4-6 inhibitors, um, and actually some recent results that we published um, it can actually take drugs that are not typically considered immunotherapies like proteasome inhibitors, but what we found is they actually increase the infectiveness of the virus, thereby making it more immunogenic. So it should work across multiple drug classes. Well, you're looking at this in combination with multiple therapies. How do you go about thinking about potential indications to pursue, and how do you prioritize them? Breast cancer for us has been a very good target. Um, it's one area where we saw single-agent activity, meaning that if we just gave women the virus, they would actually have tumor shrinkage as a single agent. And cancer therapies, for a multitude of reasons, typically only work in a handful of indications. You know, when you give someone gemcitabine, they get it for pancreatic cancer, some forms of lung cancer. You don't give it for prostate cancer, as an example, or brain tumors. And what you get for brain tumors, you typically don't get for breast. So basically, the only way to really suss that out is to run preclinical and clinical models um, just to see where it's active. And breast cancer was one indication that we kept seeing a signal time and time again. Um, multiple myeloma seems to be a very good responder. Uh, we just had some data out on that. Um, and we just announced that we actually have seen um, positive results in pancreatic cancer. So we think for us, breast is probably the lead indication but we think there's opportunities in heme malignancy like multiple myeloma, as well as in GI cancers like PANC. You're working with a, a number of partners who have checkpoint inhibitors. What's the nature of these agreements? Are they material supply agreements? Do they involve sharing of cost and clinical development responsibilities? It's the whole spectrum. Um, we have two collaborations with Merck, one in multiple myeloma, one in PANC, and that's just a typical supply agreement. So they provide Keytruda. We provide uh, the rest. Um, we have an agreement with BMS where they cover the study costs, um, and they also provide uh, Opdivo. Um, we have a clinical supply agreement with Roche, which means that they get to review the protocols, and we can request um, their checkpoint inhibitor as long as the protocol is um, basically approved and they have some say into the, the characteristics of the study and the design. And that's really what we're doing for the AWARE 1 study, which is occurring right now in Spain. And then lastly, we have a co-development agreement with Pfizer where we actually share uh, the cost of that as well as um, the study design endpoints and the biomarkers. Now, what do we know about the safety and efficacy of it uh, to date from the studies that have been done? Um, it's very well tolerated. Um, patients, how do I put this? They get the flu. Um, they develop aches, pains, arthralgia, myalgia. They get a sense that they're not doing, well, they get a sense that they're getting the flu. And actually what's interesting about this, or fascinating, if you will, 
Um, the patients who have the worst side effects are the ones who have the best outcomes. And maybe that's not surprising because infected cells release chemokines and cytokines. And all these are basically chemical flares. They alert the immune system that there's a problem, but they also release things like interferon, which cause fever, uh, aches, pains, chills. So the better the patient's infected or the better that we alert the immune system, the worse the patients feel. Now, in terms of efficacy, um, breast cancer, as I said, we doubled overall survival. Um, PANC, we're seeing uh, an increase in one- and two-year landmark survival in multiple myeloma. Uh, we have an astoundingly high response rate. So we are seeing efficacy across a number of measures. And what's the path forward? What's it take to get to a point where you can file for a regulatory approval? Um, basically, what we're doing now is a couple of studies, one's with Roche and one with Pfizer, that allows us to uh, basically develop a biomarker so that we have a greater chance of success. Um, once we've confirmed that biomarker, we basically just step into a phase three program and hopefully have an approval right after. Matt Coffey, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech. Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Daniel, thank you so much, and thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.